strong. All right, welcome to the Jig is Up. My name is Darcy, and joining me tonight is Jason. Welcome, buddy. Hey, brother. How's it going? Not bad. How about you? I am uh, finally enjoying a windless evening. Yeah, you had some trees uh, knocked over, and you were uh, doing some fun cutting today, weren't you? Yeah, it was crazy. We had a couple of days where there was some serious weather blowing through, and uh, I got more sticks in my yard than I know what to do. Nice. Well, you know, if you got nothing else to do, you get to go clean up sticks now. Yeah, you know, it's not enough that I really do enjoy just mowing the lawn. You know, I get to uh, rake all the tree debris off first. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely. Uh, well, yeah, that's what you get for living up north. Yeah, you know, God's country. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So we got uh, we got kind of a jam-packed show here. Uh, let's kick off with some hunting rights in Saskatchewan. Um, the government has decried that First Nations and Métis people will only be hunting during hunting season on Crown land. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think first, first thing that strikes me is, again, this is about um, the government trying to position itself as a conservation or organization with its its legislation and that somehow uh, they're here to protect animal herds and animal integrity and that anybody who's indigenous who goes hunting is a threat to those populations and that management structure. Yeah, I absolutely. I think that's, that's patently untrue. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, it's tough because you, you look at Saskatchewan as a province and, I mean, you know, they're kind of famous for their Starlight Tours and, of course, the Colton Bushy verdict and things like that. So it's it's kind of like a, you know, a knock. This is about the third or fourth thing in the last, I don't know, even two months that uh, Saskatchewan's kind of nailing First Nations and Métis people with, so Indigenous in general. So it's kind of a, I, I don't know, it's kind of a sad thing to see, really. Well, I think it really is inevitable. I mean, we, we see our Canadian society, the settler society at large, growing more and more uh, divided, more and more distant on uh, lots of issues. And so these are, are things that are really going to come to a head with the, the settler society simply because of their numbers and they view uh, Indigenous people as a threat to the status quo or the, or what they would consider, I guess, progress to the settler state. Absolutely. You know, there was a recent, I think it was, was it CBC, I think, or or maybe APTN that put out a, a poll and they polled non-Indigenous people um, and it was on, a, I think it was five or six questions, but what, what was the general idea was, um, you know, do you feel like the government spends too much time on Indigenous issues? Do you feel like we spend too much time apologizing? And resoundly, the uh, answers were yes. Um the majority of the answers were yes. We spend too much time on indigenous issues, and and the government's always apologizing way too much. So it's kind of not a really a surprise that uh, we're going to start seeing the hunting rights getting restricted. Um, well, I, and you, you see that that sentiment, right? And I mean, if you're not going to, you're definitely going to see that in in uh, more rural places in both Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, you know, and Manitoba won't be probably far behind. It just has a higher indigenous population per capita. So I think these kinds of things are inevitable. Well, absolutely, yeah. And I and I think it's, uh, you know, it's going to, I mean, even if you take this to court um, and try to take it, you know, through the court system, realistically you're talking 10 or 15 years to get this through a court system in, with any type of decision. Um, so really for problems to make this move, they know they got at least 10 years before 
you know, maybe they're found that they violated somebody's uh, indigenous rights. Yeah, but that's 10 years down the road. So let's worry about that when it happens, right? Well, and I think that's the the real thing here is the Canadian state is all about getting politic, politicians elected. You only got a four-year term. Uh, so the guys putting this into play look like heroes to all their uh, their farmer friends yeah. and their, their rural constituents. And so, you know, it's good for you. That's a good way to get elected. It's a good way to look like you're tackling uh, issues and, and uh, you know. And yeah. again, to do that, you just got to pass it off that the Indians are bad bad people. You know, there's damn, damn those Indians shooting everything in the bush. Well, exactly, right? You got to pass that narrative, that stereotype. And, uh, I mean, th- there is, uh, you know, I guess for the, the pub- crown land, they call it the public land or whatever in Saskatchewan. But the uh, public land, I guess if there's a leasehold on it, like somebody's leasing it for grazing or whatever, I guess you can still hunt. They can uh, still hunt on it if they get that leaseholder's permission. Um, but I don't know how readily available that information is to people that are going hunting. So uh, I don't know. I, mean, I would assume that uh, you're probably just going to not. And I'm, I'm sure that person's going to say no anyway. So I'm sure you're going to see a real restriction on the hunting. Well, it will be interesting. I don't know all the rules in how uh, crown land or public lands work in Saskatchewan. I know here in Alberta that uh, a leaseholder uh, with a grazing lease can't actually restock people from hunting. They can, however, uh, restrict access to foot access only. So as far as in, in Alberta, anyway, as far as it's my understanding, uh, you have access in hunting season to go on all public lands. The challenge I see is that uh, you still have to do it in season. And so there's a real restriction on on traditional hunting and traditional hunting and especially a real infringement on treaty rights. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things um, I was talking about this last night with a few um, uh, First Nations guys I know. And like they were saying, it just forces them back onto the reserve Uh, because obviously they can hunt on reserve, but it's... It's kind of one of those things for optics. It's not really great because you're you're forcing people back onto a reserve where um, typically <laughs> the hunting's not as good because you've forced so many people onto such a small area that the animals aren't exactly hanging out. Um, so it, it's it's it is kind of a it's kind of a forceful move. Seems like a little bit more colonialism just shoved down indigenous people's throats. Really, is all it seems. Well, and that's definitely what they want, though. They want, uh, you know, Indigenous people on reserve. They don't want them having access to what they feel is crown land or the the government of Saskatchewan's lands, and they want those people uh, restricted in what they can and cannot do. Absolutely, you know? yeah. So it's, this isn't about inclusion. It's no longer about honouring the treaties. It's, again, about how do we subjugate First Nations people to make them assimilate. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I'm surprised that it won't be long before they start charging uh, some sort of user fee to even hunt so that they can get around um, and, and, and do a roundabout way to, to try to charge uh, Indigenous people to hunt. It's not a license. It's a user fee for the land or some stupid thing. So, Well, there'll be all kinds of things coming into play about restriction, about having to report what you kill and having to, to log that in. So, you know, and it'll all be in the, the name of conservation and protection of wildlife. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. But but whatever it is, a lot of it probably won't impact the uh, the sport hunters, the non-indigenous hunters of the world. It'll probably mostly impact indigenous. <laughs> well, but that's what they want. They want the the sportsmen out there who's hunting to feel that everyone is treated the same yeah. under the law. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what this is about is that they want indigenous people not to have anything as they deem it special. No special privileges. Well, and that was actually specifically one of the questions in that APTN uh, article was, uh, you know, should First Nations, or I guess they said Indigenous, but did they say, I can't remember if they said First Nations or if they said Indigenous, but uh, it was a resounding no, we should not have special rights or special privileges, according to the general public that took that poll. So, yeah, I mean, it follows the, the mandate of, of the masses of people, right? And like you said, it's mm-hmm. about votes, so... At the end of the day, politicians got to get elected, and what better way to do it continually than off the backs of the Indigenous people? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so then uh, from there, we go into a bit of a uh, little bit of a fight going on here in Alberta. We got uh, Fort Mackay is accusing the MNA of business interference, and they are requesting an injunction against them. Um, and essentially what this was was uh, I believe the MNA was trying to negotiate with industry on behalf of the Fort Mackay community, which, you know, we did shows way back in the day about uh, the oath of allegiance that the Métis Nation of Alberta was bringing in and how it was illegal, it wasn't illegal, and I guess now it's in again. But essentially that oath said that if you're a Métis Nation member, you give up all your rights to negotiate to the Métis Nation. So... (laughs) I don't know if that's enforceable in court. Uh, I guess the Fort Mackay guys are going to be seeing if it is enforceable because they're going to court with it. So, Yeah, and it's what's quite, you know, again, we, we these guys, when we talked about this a little bit before, you know, it's quite odd and, and, and kind of mind-boggling to me that we have uh, a local, Métis local, seeking an injunction against the, what they call the Métis government. Yeah. So uh, how does that work? That's like the county I live in seeking an injunction against the province. Yeah. And and it really goes to 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 a lot of the conversations we have about how really the Métis Nation of Alberta is not a government because these are the kinds of things that go on. And if really the Métis people consider this a government, why are we taking it to the colonial government? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's just it. I mean, uh, reality is, is is this kind of thing should be taken uh, to their Métis Judiciary Council. And, oh, that's right. They haven't had one for like three years. So I guess that's maybe a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they don't even follow their bylaws, their own bylaws, and have a Judiciary Council to resolve disputes like this. I think, wasn't that the whole point of having it? But Yeah. Uh, you know what, and I, what I drives me crazy about this too, is that, um, you know, like, and the former guy, former guy, um, president said it best where, you know, they were talking about how the Métis nation usually has an individual who does all this negotiating on behalf of communities, but that individual's usually never even been to the communities that they're negotiating on behalf of. So how do they know what's best? How do you sit in Edmonton and know what's best for Fort Mackay? which is four and a half, five hours away. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I totally agree with them. I mean, I think this is ridiculous. But it, it's like you said, it just shows how this isn't a government situation. This is a bunch of greedy people trying to seek out dollars 
Um, and they'll do it on the backs of their own people. Yeah, and it really shows that there's a, a big lack of uh, respect about what goes on locally and how the provincial organization wishes to usurp that power. I mean, in, in provincial colonial politics, the county is free to negotiate with industry for the county's benefit. Uh, in the county I live in, there's several uh, wood-driven industries in pulp and paper. And other than funding... Uh, the government kicking in funds for the startup of those organizations, what happens here locally within the county is up to the county's discretion. Yeah. Well, uh, and I, I think it's... So it, how, how come that isn't reflected in Métis government? Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, you, we've had 90 years of Métis Nation of Alberta, and they haven't yet figured out in 90 years how to separate and segregate and, and isolate duties or isolate the powers of each. You know, the local has this authority. The uh, regional has this authority and the provincial has this authority. They, in 90 years, they haven't figured that out. So then, well, they did, Darcy. <laughs> they did figure that out. Yeah. All yeah. of that resides in the power of the presidency. Exactly. Yeah, it all resides. So they, they, did, they did figure that out. Whoever, the, the, at this moment in time, the madame president, yeah. <laughs> has total yeah. power. Yeah. The community, the local, has no power. Well, and that and that is certainly how they want it. But and that sounds very democratic to me. I, I it it's doesn't, highly democratic. Highly yeah, democratic. like I, I think that's an. A, they should travel the world to show everybody their de- democratic uh, system, just to really highlight how awesome it is. Well, it would really be good, I think, if Métis people uh, supporting this organization did step up to the plate and begin to, you know, kind of school our our uh, colonial settler. Uh, cousins there uh, on how to truly run a good democratic organization. That's right. You give the power to all one person and we're good. Yes, let's model the M&A structure for our our, our partners there so they have a real good idea of how it should work. Yeah, we'll we'll see how long that lasts. Um, I think think we're doing a good job because I mean, look at the federal government. It seems that all power goes to the top, so maybe they are taking a page out of the M&A's book. Yeah, well, there you go. It could be. Um, yeah, well, and, and, you know, especially heading into elections, like, I, I just think this is, uh, I don't know, I think the whole thing is ridiculous. They're heading into elections. They've broken bylaws. They've never been an- had to answer for it. They've, you know, they're trying to negotiate for communities. They have no idea what that community even needs. I mean, uh, we did a podcast a couple of podcasts ago. We are talking about the Manitoba Métis Federation that said, now that we have this money, now we're going to go to the communities and find out what they want. I'm like, well... If you don't know what your communities want after, like in this case, 90 years in Alberta, what are you doing? What have you done for 90 years? I mean, in 90 years, you haven't figured out how to run a governance structure. You haven't come up with new ideas to break away from the nonprofit mold. I mean, if you truly want to say they're a government of for Métis people, then break out of the mold and put some thought to how you structure it and how you segregate the powers. My God, this is like dem- democracy or governance 101, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. But, and I think that's the real challenge, though, is that we, we have Métis people and we have, and again, in Alberta, it's the MNA's election year. But where where are the leaders posting about their resolution to this? You know, if they're running for office or rerunning... You know what do they see as the solution? And you, you know, you kind of see mums the word. Yeah, exactly. Because they don't, they don't really have one. 
No, well, no, that's just it. I mean, you know, you want to talk about elections. Well, look at every other election. I mean, uh, when it comes to a municipal election of um, at any level of government elections, uh, those people running for election um, should be publicly accessible, should be there to answer questions, should be there to tell you their plans for the future. And I guarantee you, you you're not going to get these answers from Madame President. Uh, mm-hmm. If you, where is she even going to be to talk to? Um, so it, it's, I don't know, it, it's very, it, it's disheartening when I read these things. I, I think it's, it kind of makes me laugh in a way because I can't believe that, you know, somebody would have the the wherewithal to think that this is this is totally okay and is going to be acceptable by everybody to, to do. But, you know, she's been doing it for 20 years uh, the way it is and not, you know, 80 years before that, so I guess it is acceptable. Well, clearly, and that's the real challenge. It sure seems that that is the way they want us to go. And, it, you know, I don't see the electorate, um, AT people getting out and voting anything different. And you sure don't see any leadership coming out and saying they're going to do anything different. So, you know, it's, it seems like four more years of the status quo. Well, that's just it, and I know that I know uh, they got lots of candidates running. But I mean, is is the deck stacked against them from the beginning? Because are they going to have enough people to even show up at the to vote to make a difference? Um, you know, I mean, Audrey's got her, or sorry, Madam President has her cadre of people that are followers, and they'll all show up to vote. That, is that going to be in, you know, is anybody, it, it's voter turnout at this point that's going to make the difference, not necessarily one candidate is so much better than the other. It's going to be voter turnout. Um, I mean, Well, exactly. And, and But I still think some of the challenge lies in the fact that none of the the electorate, like the people seeking election in the offices have come out on any of these issues. And yeah, so even, even if we manage to change leadership, where do they actually stand on anything other than they, they're very proud of their Métis identity and their Métis heritage, but there's very little that they're saying that they're going to radically alter the course of this wayward ship. Well, and, and that's true, absolutely. I, I did see one comment, um, and it wasn't even really a bold statement. It was just uh, one of the candidates uh, running for president had stated on this particular issue that they would support communities. Um, but... And, you know, I, I guess that's the polit- political speak, but that's such a vague statement. What does that mean? You're going to support communities? Because I'll bet you right now Madam President is saying, well, no, we're supporting the community. We, we've hired somebody to specifically negotiate for all of our communities. That's how we're supporting our communities. And so I'd, I'd like to see, like you said, a little, a little more clear, defined statements from anybody that's running saying this is wrong, this is what we want to do. Um, well, and see see a solution other than a top-down solution. If you support communities, how do you support a community in a top-down organization like that for those independent, self-directed negotiations? Well, exactly. And it's specifically to this, what are you going to do when the, when Fort Mackay says, okay, what are you going to do different? Well, tell us. Tell us ahead of time. What, what is your plan? What is your, um, what is your general idea, at least at this point in time? Uh, so... You know, these are some things that I, I think need definitely need to happen. Um, you know, I, and it was interesting, too. I think one of the last points I want to make about this was that uh, the the uh, Fort Mackay guys kind of compared the MNA to, or the and the MNC in that matter, to the Assembly of First Nations. 
And uh, they said, you know, the Assembly of First Nations doesn't uh, dictate how negotiations are conducted with, within their communities. So why is the MNA and the MNC going to do that? And I thought that was a, an, a great point to make. Why are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we hear how much dissatisfaction there is with, with the AFN on all kinds of fronts. And, you know, right now on this kind of issue, they're ma- the AFN is making the uh, MNA look bad. And so what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Well, and, and it begs the bigger question, too. Like, you know, when you look at the MNA, or uh, the MNA, the Metis, or man, I can't, the Assembly of First Nations, when you look at that, how much people are dissatisfied with that system, and really, uh, what are the, what do they do at this point? They're mainly a lobby group. Uh, so then you turn your head and you go, okay, well, the MNC is standing right there beside them. What do they do? They're just a lobby group, but they don't actually really do anything. They just take money and stand beside the prime minister and smile and nod and clap. Like I. So both of those organizations really, like at this point in time, are are useless, in my opinion. Um, so it's nice to compare them. Nice to see that other people see that and compare them as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the real thing people don't understand. It, it, you know, we've seen several Métis leaders come out and say how they're, the MN whatever is not a, a lobby group, but a government. But yet what we see is that if it was a government, it has no independency outside of government funding or industry funding. And so uh, how can it really be a government when, again, it really is a lobby organization, no different than uh, the the AFN? And so really, what are they? What do they do? And and, now that we're heading into an election, what is anybody really going to do differently that would give uh, people who or on the outside or in, you know, filing a court injunction against own organization, any hope that things would be different. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's a real sad state of affairs, uh, like a sad sign of things when you're, when you are, you know, taking your own people to court for things like that. Um, one of the things that I am, uh, kind of trying to do down here is where I'm trying to organize a, like a Métis Nation of Alberta elections candidates forum. And uh, I don't even think I told you about this yet. But uh, in July, I'm, I'm trying to organize it for July so that uh, we can do almost kind of a live show and have all of the candidates running for Region 3 at least. And have I'm going to ask them some questions and I'm going to open up to the audience to ask some questions. But I really want them to answer like, okay, when it comes to accountability, are you going to bring in uh, where everybody has to post their expense accounts? Is that going to be public information? Is... Uh, are your members going to have access to the mem- to see how many members are on the membership list? Uh, you know, all these kinds of accountability and transparency things. Because I really want to see, are any of you really different? Are you going to do something different? Because I see a lot of them saying they want change. But what does that mean? you got to be more specific than that. So well, that's what it, I'm working uh, on. I want... Well, I hope that succeeds. I mean, we need to create some kind of forum where people are held accountable and have to answer some hard questions right from the electorate before people cast their ballot. But, I mean, everybody wants change when it comes to these things. I want the person out because then I can sit in their chair and get get the paycheck they're getting, and boy, won't that be great. Yeah, exactly. Well, and again, what is change? So, okay, I got elected. Um, I brought in three new events for the year. Oh, well, that was change. We're doing – look at how much more stuff we're doing. We did three whole of more mm-hmm. events in a year. 
Is it that kind of change? Or are we talking substantive change here where the people can actually go, hey, these guys are doing all right now. They're doing better. So we'll see. I, I'm excited for it. I hope it comes to fruition. Uh, I think the only person I haven't heard from is uh, the current vice president of Region 3, and I, I'll leave his name out, but I sent him a message. So if you're listening, you want to check your messages. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but everybody else seems to be on board, so we'll uh, hopefully have that to mid mid July, I think, and we'll uh, post it up as quick as we can so they can get out there before the elections. But, I think that'd be amazing because I don't think that's something that's it's really happened uh, within the M and A. And what's funny is is that, uh, that you take up that initiative when the M and A doesn't work to create those kinds of, of forums. I mean, that's what real government does. Real government engages the candidates engages diversity engages those conversations so the electorate knows who they're voting for exactly and i i that's actually part of the reason i want to do is show them that you know what <laughs> non-metis nation of alberta members are taking this initiative but you guys aren't i mean that's pretty pathetic but again that's just my opinion you know whatever but, accountability it's for those other guys <laughs> yeah that's right that sounds like a visa commercial or something yeah <laughs> Uh, but, hey, speaking of, uh, we have some good news for all you Métis Nationers out there uh, that are diehard Métis Nation fans. Uh, the Métis Nation of British Columbia is going to be taking control of their child welfare uh, for Métis children in foster care in, by 2021. And uh, so, hey, I honestly, without even being sarcastic, I think this is a, a good move. Uh, I wish that the government wouldn't restrict it to just the Métis Nation of British Columbia, but it is what it is, and I think it's a good move that the government is willing to give Métis people control over the Métis children in foster care. So that's a bonus. Yeah, it can't go wrong. Uh, well, I mean, it can go wrong in a lot of ways, but at, at least then uh, Métis people are having some direct impact and direct say into probably what is a staggering cross-Canada issue is... Uh, indigenous kids in care absolutely so, you know uh, it's overwhelming the numbers are staggering and so to get any kind of movement at all is is good yeah and you know I, they they had some numbers in in the, the article that i read about this uh and currently right now there's 520 metis children in foster care just in bc alone however uh up until recently, they weren't really putting much effort into determining who was and was not Métis. Uh, so a lot of, there could be a lot of, you know, a few hundred, who knows, uh, Métis children that are classed as, as white kids in, uh, in the foster care system that I don't, I don't know if we'll ever figure it out at this point mm. for them. But, uh, I, and I hope that they, ha they didn't really have a structure for what this really means. They said, no. We've agreed to do it. Now we're going to work it out for the next few years to make sure that it happens and work out how it happens. And uh, But I truly hope it means that perhaps the Métis people get to decide who actually gets removed from a home and who doesn't. I really hope it gets to that level because I think that's where the key is here. Um, yeah, absolutely. If the government's going to keep stealing kids and we just get to take care of them, I don't think that's a good system. So... Yeah, we yeah, so that's not going to be a good deal. Um, <laughs> no. Hopefully, it doesn't. It, that's not the way it goes. But um, I guess we've got time to work that out. I think at least it's a conversation that has the possibility to go in the right direction. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, uh, as far as the BC government goes, I mean, you know, you got to give them some kudos. This is the first time in Canadian history that this has happened. So they, they have made some history. And, uh, you know, the, the minister, I think it was the deputy minister that was there, uh, made the statement that uh, that's the real legacy of colonialism, the separating of kids from their families and culture, and that the real foundation of, and that's the real foundation as to why we're doing this. And I think that's uh, pretty impressive that they've actually recognized that that is colonialism and part of genocide, and they want to actually stop that. So good on them. I mean, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now hopefully it sets a model that uh, this can continue in uh, jurisdictions right across the country. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, putting aside my my grievance with the Métis Nation cartel organizations, I I think uh, this is sorely needed for all Indigenous people. I mean, as much as uh, you know, there's some chief and councils out there that I'm sure are are not great, but I'd still rather see Indigenous kids getting taken care of by Indigenous people. So. Hats off to everybody involved, and I really hope this starts a trend. I, I you know, I wish Alberta was the number one that, that did this first, but we're not. Uh, so we're hopefully we're number two. Maybe it'll maybe it'll be a, a reverse colonialism from west to east as opposed to the colonialism that went east to west. One can only hope we'll see if the uh, old NDP here in Alberta uh, step up to the plate. Yeah, although my hopes aren't high from those pipeline pushers. <laughs> Yeah, it, that's a whole, man, that's a, just a mess, that whole pipeline thing. But uh, that's, I don't know, that's for another episode, I guess. <laughs> um, we don't have that many hours in an evening. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because, not to get too into it, but, you know, when I was out in Victoria, there was, I mean, it's very clear out there that people don't want the pipeline going there. And whether I agree or not, it doesn't matter. That That's the way they feel. And, uh, you know, the, the Métis that I did talk to, they side with their First Nation family, man. They're saying, we don't want the pipeline. And then when Chartrand came out and said what he said, it was kind of like, you know, everybody I talked to was like, that that dude doesn't represent me. What the hell is he talking? He's talking out his ass, man. I don't even want anything to do with that guy. Um, so it's, again, you see this dissension within this amazing government of 400,000 Métis, and it's just more dissension, and, and there's more talk of you know, maybe splitting away. Maybe we can start something outside of the Métis Nation. And um, But how do we get that going and how do we talk to the government and, you know, without the Métis National Council? So uh, there's dissension in the ranks. And I think if, honestly, if something doesn't happen, I can see these this cartel uh, eventually breaking up, hopefully, um, just because they're they're not pleasing anybody at this point, I don't think. Yeah. Again, I mean, we've talked about not not to uh, you know drag this show, but uh, we've talked about this at length. The only time that'll happen is when many people finally get pissed off enough to coalesce into something really as an alternative, Absolutely. other than just whine, whine about being pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And and that's why I think it's uh, it's quite powerful when you see uh, like Fort Mackay going out there with injunctions. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. You don't get much bolder mm-hmm. than that. And uh, you know, I, again, I think that's going to set the tone. For, I mean, if they do it and they set their foot down, and the Métis Nation has to either has to back down or chooses to back down, that's going to set a whole new standard of things. And I think other communities are going to go, "Hey, wait a minute. Well, if they did it, why can't we?" And I, I don't know. I think it'll set off some interesting things. If if that doesn't change things, man, I don't know what will. I guess last but not least is uh, <laughs> I had a conversation online about. 
status cards and Métis cards, treaty cards. And I know I've I've talked about it, you've talked about it, we've talked about it a lot. But, well, maybe not a lot, but a few times before. Uh, but I want to reiterate to anybody listening that there is no treaty card. Um, it is an Indian Act status card is what it is. Indian Act is not treaty. Indian Act is a genocide um, act. And treaty is treaty. So when you signed a treaty, you didn't get a card. And the nations that don't have treaties still have Indian Act cards. So it's not a damn treaty card. Uh, but basically, the, the conversation we had was, uh, it was about people that had basically, I guess you look at it like dual citizenship, where they have their Indian Act status card, and then they have their Métis card. And, well, that's not fair. They shouldn't have both. And my thoughts are, well, we're one Indigenous family, right? So, I mean, why not have both? What is it that says we can't have both? And well, you can't have both because then you'll be double dipping into the coffers of that government funding, and then you know there's just not enough bread to go around for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. That's the mentality that I that I see. Well, and that's it. I mean, that's the government's attitude, right? Is they don't want people having both because they don't want to pay for programs for. Those people, uh, twice, even though that's really, I mean, I don't, that not really doesn't make sense, but, but that is the mentality. And, uh, you know, some of the things that I think, uh, for me that is, is difficult with this conversation is when you see people so entrenched that they need to have a card to determine who they are or who other people are. Like we need to register our people and, you know, I, 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 I made this point, and I hope it gets across. The, the only time people need to register their race with our, and with the government is when the government is committing genocide. <laughs> and that is it. Uh, South Africa modeled our apartheid after the Canadian and American uh, treatment of the indigenous people, and including race cards. So... Even they've done away with their race cards. Can we not do the same? Well, I think that it really shows that we have a real problem when it comes to Indigenous identity and how we need to recover from that trauma. Is to say, if the only way your identity is valid is by the plastic that you carry, then we have a real problem uh, in our security as Indigenous people about who we are. And specifically Métis people, if we are the people who own ourselves, then we've got to be a lot more comfortable without that piece of plastic because if the only time we're going to recognize someone's identity as a Métis person is if it's government back, then we have to acknowledge that then by definition, we are trying to limit or tourniquet or outright extinguish Métis identity at the hands of our colonial oppressors. Absolutely, and I mean, you know, we've talked about it many times about how, uh, you know, this stuff is, is it, it is about reducing the fiduciary duty of the government. Um, the more people that get denied because they don't meet Pauli criteria, the more people that simply don't see the point of paying for a card anymore and just don't have it, all and they, so they disengage, all of that stuff is the benefit to the government. Um, and, and so it, it's disheartening when you hear people talk about these cards as though, they're the gold standard of what we need to achieve. Um, <clears throat> you know, and even 
I, this this really brought bothered me too. Is somebody brought this up? If you go to the actual MNC website, uh, on their somewhere on their page, I think it's when they're in their um, application area to become Métis. They actually say this: it is now possible to be registered as Métis in much the same way that First Nations are registered as Indians in the Indian Registry. And, I mean, my brain just starts screaming, like, why does anybody want this? Why? <laughs> like, oh, it drives me crazy, and people are like, no, this is a good thing. It is not a good thing. But, well, I, you know, and I think that's the, the first and foremost thing people need to realize when it comes to this, this plastic, is that it is meant to first identify you as Métis, Second of all, is down the road, is exactly to do what they did with the First Nations cousin, is to find a way to limit how long you and your offspring and your descendants can stay that. How many times after that registry comes in and is fully registered with the federal government, under the Indian Act, how many times can your daughter or son marry out and your kids will no longer be mating? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And that has to be the inevitable question because that's what happens when we no longer own ourselves and we allow the government to register us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly it. You look at right now, so let's take the most Métis person in the world and they have kids. Well, if their kids don't marry Métis people and they have grandkids and those grandkids don't marry Métis people, well then does the government say, well, after three generations you're no longer Métis unless you marry Métis people? Because that's essentially that's really what it boils down to in the Indian Act card, um, is is it expires. If you start thinning out the blood too much, they it it goes away, um, and and that comes with some serious ramifications because you basically lose all of your, you you know you you have, can't get housing, you can't get any help from your 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 band, um, and so. Is, is that what the next step is for the government to say to these Métis nations? You know, after three generations or four, I don't know if anybody's really Métis if they haven't married into Métis, you know. So, Well, and I think, I think that one of the most frustrating things that I come across when it comes to these cards, and especially when it comes to using these cards to validate or invalidate someone's ID, and for me the absolute travesty is when we say that you can't be both First Nations and Métis, is we are basing that conversation on the fact that we think that, uh, like Tony Belcourt said, uh, that Ottawa is a loaf of bread. Yeah. And Ottawa isn't a loaf of bread. Ottawa is a bakery. Yeah. And I think the problem is nobody here is getting their fair share. And I think if there was a way for you to get your fair share and it meant you could do both at the same time, I personally don't have a problem with that because no one who's Indigenous is getting their fair share. Exactly. No one is. is in, no one who's indigenous is getting their rightful stake in what is going on in this country. And if there was a way for, at any level, for that to happen more equitably for you and your family, then I would support that. And I think we need to really stop and think that if the government can spend, you know, how many billions of dollars to buy a pipeline and to support pipeline actions for billions of billions of dollars, then we have to stop quibbling over the little bits of money that they give us and recognize that we're all Indigenous and you can truly be Métis and First Nations at the same time. Well, and that's exactly it. And, and you know, this boils down for me it's, is very much that. It's an argument about uh, governments setting up different 
programs and services depending on which Métis group you are. Now, geographically, yes, I can understand there being different programs. I mean, the Inuit have very different needs than, you know, the indigenous people living in and around Calgary. Just geographically, I get that. But the truth is, is, is when you look at Indian Act status cards, they get you access to certain programs and services that Métis people don't get. But Métis people get certain access to programs and services that First Nations don't get. And then Inuit are, are separate from all of that as well. So, yeah, like I, I totally agree with you. If you find a way where you can actually access the programs and services the government sets aside for Indigenous people, then go for it. And I, I think the bigger conversation should be, why are there different programs for different Indigenous groups living in the same province in the same geographic area? Why is it different? It should be the same programs and services. So... Rather than fight about which plastic card you have in your wallet, let's start fighting about why the hell are we separated by these things? Um, and that, that all well, goes back a, to the government. I, yeah. yeah, I think a, you hit the, the nail on the head uh, when you said it was about reducing fiduciary responsibility is we have to acknowledge the government doesn't want to pay yeah, oh, for yeah. in, Indigenous people. And then they definitely don't want to pay equally across the board. I think largely that's what the Daniels case speaks to is yeah. that, that Métis people should have equal access to the programs and services. What I find astounding is that they think that if Métis people are going to access this program, there'll somehow be less money. The government has shown that it has endless money and endless will to borrow money to fund whatever it wants. We have to hold their feet to the fire to make sure that we have our fair share. Absolutely. And we, sh- we shouldn't be fighting each other over that, we should be fighting together to make sure that we all get that fair share, not fighting or leave the breadcrumbs. Absolutely. I mean, and, and there's so many things like that where the government pits us against each other on purpose. And I guess the optimist and the naive optimist in me wants to say it's not on, you know, they're not doing it knowingly, but I really believe it is knowingly. Um, for example, you have... The Métis settlements are on top of traditional First Nation territory where the First Nations got very tiny little reserves, but the Métis settlements are huge. Well, what is that going to create? It's going to create problems right there. Because one group is forced onto this concentration camp over here that's a third the size of of your piece of property over here. And so you're right there, automatic division. Automatic division. People are fighting with each other. People are mad at each other. Then you bring in these cards and you go, okay, well, if you have this card, you get these services. And if you get this card, you get these services. And none of the two shall be the same. You're creating more division. And then after a few generations, they're not seeing the division created by the government. It's just fight amongst yourselves. And the government sits back and just laughs. And then the conservatives come in and the liberals, and we just go through election cycles, and nothing really gets resolved because we're too busy fighting and being mad at our neighbors because they have two cards and I only got one. Well, turn to the government then saying, why did we need two cards to access the programs and services for Indigenous people? It should be the same. Yeah, and I think that's what we really need to have a discussion is that the government has all the money it needs to go around for all the programs and services for all Indigenous people and for everybody to be treated equally. And tripping up over who, which piece of plastic you have that identifies you as which one of the three uh, indigenous peoples in this country is stupid. 
and I think is small-minded. Absolutely. We have way bigger issues and way bigger problems than saying, you know, we're going to play, we're going to do the government's job of identity politics for them, and we're going to limit who can access our community and our lands and do these kinds of things based on which one you happen to be is doing the government's job for them. Let's, hey, that, I mean, that sounds like a really smart idea. Why don't we discriminate against each other based on our indigenous identity? And then we can save the government the hassle of doing it for us. Absolutely. And it, I, I get that it's patently unfair. Um, in, and But again, these are divisions that are purposely created within our community, within our families of people. Uh, if we are one big indigenous family, the government is in there trying to pit brothers against brothers and sisters against sisters and aunts against everybody and uncles against... And like it, that's the government's job, it seems, is to try to get us fighting. And they do a great job of it. Um, so mm-hmm. as frustrating as it is on the on the down here on the ground where everybody actually lives, it is very frustrating to see this happen. But you got to turn to your government and say, okay, well, you guys are the ones that created it. You have to now. You have to fix it. And uh, yeah, and fixing it isn't by creating more divisions. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's breaking down the divisions, and and that's where. We need to turn to our First Nations, and we need we need to start saying to them, um, we need to start partnering up and teaming up with them. And I, I, in my opinion, we need to start putting that relationship first and the government second. If Indigenous people came together and they they came to an agreement on something, then take that to the government and say, here's what we're doing. <laughs> and you you just have to this. We're telling you what we're doing. That's it. Um, because, and I really, truly believe that is the relationship that needs to be first. Um, unfortunately, to quote Justin Trudeau. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I, I think that's right. I think you're, you're absolutely correct. If we're going to talk about uh, what needs to get fixed, that's probably the, the top priority. Is there's a lot of uh, brokenness. There's a lot of resentment in between Métis and First Nations people in this country. And we need to remedy that because there's not enough of us uh, combined when you're talking about 35 million plus people in Canada. Uh, uh, when we look at the Canadian states and its citizens' uh, priority list for Indigenous people, its uh, mandate towards our resources, our lands and our waters. we got a lot bigger problems than fighting each other over which piece of plastic you identify and what access to programs and services that gives you. And if you happen to be double dipping and you think that's a bad deal, these things are trivial and we got bigger fish to fry. And the longer the government keeps us distracted uh, over these petty issues, the longer it's going to have free reign to uh, kill all of the trees and the resources till there's nothing left. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, I think this strikes to the heart of a lot of the issues that we see across the country. I mean, uh, you know, we have this animosity out east to, between First Nations and, and Métis simply because, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened on the east coast that, uh, you know, and, and indigenous, you know, First Nations out there have had to literally die to keep fishing rights and to fight for their rights. And I, and I totally get that. And the part of the problem is, is this government-forced division of people where we can no longer share that land. It has to be us or them, and or it has to be our program, not yours. And and if we were to start, you know, seeing this cohesion amongst Indigenous people, I think a lot of these problems would simply disappear because 
No longer could the government say, oh, or anybody else, academics included, say, oh, these guys are trying to steal your your land and take away your rights. Well, if you were working together on these things, you could honestly say, no, they're not. We're we're in this together. And that goes across the country. And um, and I think you see pockets of that. I think, and, and I think this is where the real, um, uh, I guess, differences for me is when you actually sit down and talk with people, you get a very different um, idea or sense of what they believe compared to what their organization provincially or federally believes and what the government believes. And I think people on the ground level just simply want to be Indigenous people together. They want that cohesion. Um, But in today's society with all these structures, how do you do that? And I think that's where a lot of people are is, well, this is what we all want that, but how do we get there? We don't know how to get there with these stupid organizations and structures that are in place that fight against us. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a challenge for everybody. I think that's what, you know, look, going back to that court injunction, that's what this is really starting to show is that we need to have those strong communities stand up and take the forefront. We need you know, on reserve. We need on settlement. We need off and urban Métis people and Indigenous people across the board to begin to have these conversations about uniting, about standing up to these, you know, corporate uh, lobby groups and entities and find out how do we unite the Indigenous front uh, because we're threatened across the board. All our land, all our water, all our programs and services are only as good as the government that funds them and we need to really change that. Because millions of dollars in resource money is being extracted uh, daily, and we don't see, you know, a tenth of it. So, yeah, we really, we really need to change the narrative. We need to have a bigger vision than these these small-minded conversations and these petty arguments, and get down to the business of reconciliation. And that needs to start with our own communities and our own people and our own relations. And when we do that, I think we'll find the true strength of Indigenous people in Canada and we can really change the narrative of this conversation. Beautiful words. That's a beautiful way to end it. Um, I think uh, I, I had nothing better to say, man. You you are the professor. <laughs> uh, I wanted. I just wanted to let everybody know that we uh, we do have a new website up and running. So if you want to go check it out, it's uh, www.metispodcast.ca, and uh, you can go to the contact form and fill it out and get on our mailing list, our email list. Um, you can check out some of the things there. You got the most recent episodes. You got our Twitter feed. All sorts of stuff is on the page. So check that out. Links to the Patreon page. So. If you did enjoy this show and you want to get more stories and interviews, head to our Patreon page. Uh, The link will be in the description. And for as little as 5 bucks a month, you get exclusive access to exclusive content. Um, And uh, please feel free to do that. Every little bit helps, as you uh, may have noticed or may not. I don't know. We uh, did use our Patreon money for the last couple months to help sponsor... um, the Institute for the Advancement of Aboriginal Women here in Alberta, we sponsored a young woman to go to their retreat. Uh, it was for, I think, 13 to 17-year-olds, so we were able to use that patron money for that. So just so you know where your patron money is going, it's going to make Jason plant trees, and it's going to do things like that within our our community, our province, and maybe even on a bigger scale, hopefully. So, you know, it's not just to go to pay me and Jason uh, a nice fat wage. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to do this uh, to to use this to to make 
our community is better and stronger. So that's where it's going to go. And that's what we did with it the last couple months. And I'm really happy that we were able to do that. That was awesome. Okay. Now that the weather's a bit nicer here and the winds down, I hopefully will uh, get out and plant those trees. Yes, uh, I have a little bit. I have a little more to plant than uh, than people paid for because uh, that's what I do. <laughs> so I picked up a whole. I picked up a whole bunch. Uh, so I'll try to get that uh, video so you can see me sticking trees in the dirt. I'll try to get that here done uh, shortly. Absolutely, and and from what I understand, you're in me replanting like an old cut block or something. Yeah, it's a little bit of an older growth uh, reforce, so some of the trees are up, but it was originally a uh, pine spruce mix stand that is just all suckered back to poplar because it was cut and never reforested. it. So we're going to start to bring back some of the indigenous trees and to restore some of the habitat. Nice. So that's if you go to our patron page, that's, uh, you know, for $10 a month, that's what your money's going to go to is make Jason plant trees. So... I encourage everybody to go do that because, you know, Jason needs the workout. He's just been laying around the house all day these days, not doing much of anything. So, Surfing the web, you know, <laughs> getting ready to do the, the uh, podcast rant. That's all I do. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm happy. You, you, you sponsor, I'll plant as many trees. You want to put your money in there, I am happy to plant trees all day long. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, I don't. Uh, we have a live event coming up next weekend on June sixteenth. Um, it's at the Wild Rose United Church, and you can go on Facebook and find out all the information. It's on our Facebook page uh, at Métis Podcast, and uh, it's going to be really fun. I, I hope anybody in the Calgary area that enjoys the show comes out and uh, is able to ask questions. We are going to be talking about decolonizing the arts, and we have some really awesome guests coming on. Uh, some artists that I know, some that I don't. And uh, so it's really going to be a great conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. There, It's a whole family Super event. Excited. Yeah. yeah, it's a whole family event. So if you want to bring your kids and stuff, there's a lot of things they can do. Like they're going to be painting, there's going to be stories, there's going to be drumming, all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be a blast. Um, so check that out. And then we're going to post that. I'm going to get that edited and posted up uh, the following day on Sunday so that everybody can hear it. So that'll be a bit of a special episode for everybody. So I hope you guys like it. And uh, I don't. Any final thoughts, Jason? Not for me, sir. All right. Well, you heard it best. Then uh, until next time, uh, I guess we'll be back. And other than the live event, we'll be back in two weeks to rant and rave again. And until then, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses, a fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. No more living in darkness. Our time.